Some of you may have listened to Jim Gaffigan from time to time. If you haven't, you ought to, even this afternoon when you're having your Sabbath cake and Cokes. But Jim Gaffigan, responding to sort of the newfound uh, nutritional Nazism, the militant concern for good eating, and says this, Can we stop with all the kale propaganda? It tastes like bug spray, he says. He said, I went to the store and I looked at a can of bug spray and it said, made with real kale. He says, kale is like, it's like bitter spinach with hair on it. And I like that. Can we stop the propaganda about kale? You know how I heard about that? Somebody in the congregation said, have you heard Jim Gaffigan about kale? So we listened to it. Because somebody that I value told me I should listen to it. And of course, most of the things that you watch, most of the products you buy, the places that you go, the doctors you see, the schools that you entertain, the clothes that you wear, all manner of these things ordinarily happen because someone connected to you values these things enough and values you enough that they have to spread it to you. They have to offer it to you. Everyone is an evangelist in some way or another, whether they realize it or not. There are all kinds of evangelists right now for, for gay marriage. There are all sorts of evangelists right now for community-supported agriculture. There are all sorts of propagandists for eating kale. You've probably heard about the lady in the restaurant in North Carolina who gave someone a discount because they prayed publicly because the story went viral. You've heard of and seen. It's a double rainbow all the way, all the way across the sky. Oh my gosh, it's starting to look like a triple rainbow. What does this mean? You've seen these things because someone liked them and then told someone else about them and then they told someone else about them and it moved about most of the shows that you binge on from Netflix because somebody you liked liked that show. See, the whole idea of social media depends on vibrant networks of people sharing information, products, Advice, news, desires that they have with people that they care about. And they sharing it with people they care about. And so on it goes. The Apostle Paul envisions something much like this. When he talks at the end of this letter to this Thessalonian church that he adores, that he's proud of, that he's writing because they've encountered a great deal of struggle. They've encountered a great deal of dismay. He's wanting to make sure that they are not unsettled by false teachers telling them that the day of the Lord has already come, that they're not undone by disruptive and idle people among them. He's commending them for their growth. And at the end of the letter, like he does at the beginning of the letter, he urges prayer. At the beginning of the letter, he's praying for them. We ought always to praise God because your faith is is constantly flourishing. 
And your love is always exponentially increasing. But here at the end, he says, Brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored. Let this message go viral. Pray that the Lord would have it run without impediment, without hindrance, all around the land, to all kinds of creatures everywhere. Because you see... The Apostle Paul envisions that this message of the Lord, which in other places he will call the gospel of God's grace. He thinks that this is the necessary component for the rescue and not the self-destruction of all people in every place. He thinks that if this message will spread, it will be good news for all creation. And if this message is honored... It will honor the one who has rescued him so fantastically. And he wants other people to know about it. So he says, pray that this message of the Lord, this message of a risen king who is going to make all things sad untrue, that it spreads. Walker Percy has a self-interview that you may have heard me mention before. I know I used it in a response one time. Walker Percy was a Catholic Southern writer, wrote many great novels. And in this self-interview, it's called Questions They Never Asked Me, and he's interviewing himself. And at the beginning, they talk about his Catholic faith, and they say to him, he says to himself as a proposed, supposed reporter, what kind of Catholic are you? And he answers quite simply, a bad one. What kind of Catholic are you? I'm a bad one, he says. And see, one of the reasons that the apostle is excited and wants people to pray for the spread, for the viral, for the movement of this message about Jesus is because he knows, even from us, that we're the kind of people, because we've come into an acquaintanceship with this, who could say, without delusion, if someone said, what kind of Christian are you, Eric? I would say this, a bad one? A flimsy-hearted one, a fickle one, a moody one. Sometimes I, I want God so bad I can't stand it. And sometimes I'd rather read the back of a cereal box than the Bible. Sometimes I want to do what God wants so badly. And other times I don't care what God wants and I don't want to know what he wants because I'm afraid he's going to mess up my life. And sometimes I'm just plain mean and hard-hearted to people around me, and I'm stingy, and I'm easily offended, and I'm envious of what good is happening to other people, and I secretly want them to hurt themselves. That's what I am sometimes, and yet, and yet, and yet, you know what I believe? Without delusion, I believe that God likes me. I believe that all my sins, which are more than I can count, that are more than the hairs on my head or even in my eyebrows, they're about to touch you, aren't they? i got to get this taken care of. I believe that I belong, body and soul, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, in life and in death. And that He has fully paid for all my sins and rescued me from the tyranny of the devil. 
I believe that he watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head apart from the will of my Father in heaven and that he, by his Spirit, makes me henceforth willing and able to follow him. I believe this. And it changes me and it gives me hope. And when I'm a bad Christian, which is a lot of the time, it gives me the hope to keep coming back to the one who knew how bad I would be before and who intends to love me till I'm good. And the apostle knew that same thing. He knew the patience of this Lord who took him from violence and ignorance and trying to destroy the church to being somebody who wants to make the church big and strong and beautiful and a living depiction, a sermon in shoes, an embodiment of the fragrance of the Savior to everyone in the world that they might come into living contact with the warmth and wonder of this God who wants to replenish the earth And save it from self-destruction and from all of its God allergies. He knows that if this message spreads, if you pray that this message would move, that people will come into contact with true, slate-shattering forgiveness. You've heard the famous psychiatrist who said, we could release half the people in this mental hospital tomorrow if we could only convince them of forgiveness. Do you know how many people, and there's all people outside of here, I'm sure, who walk around just feeling so guilty? Things that they should have done, and they didn't. Things they did did do, and they know they shouldn't have, and they have a hard time dealing with it, and they have just guilt dripping off them like, like sweat, in a barn on Durham Road on August the 10th. It's just dripping. And they, they feel so guilty. And to believe that there was someone who said, yes, it's true. You don't even have to pretend it's not. You just say it. Yes, I'm guilty. All that stuff, I can't make amends for it. But I, be- I believe that he was punished for my healing. That the punishment that was upon him has brought me peace. That's how Paul can say, May the Lord Lord of peace himself give you peace in every way and at all times. You can have peace with God. You You can look him in the eye, even though he knows everything about you. Because Christ offers forgiveness that shatters the slate. There is no score. And Paul knows that's good news if we can get it out to people. If they can... They can let down their defenses enough. If wicked and evil men can stop thinking this is a threat to them and can lay down their arms. If they can stop being like a fragrance of a flower revolting against the flower that produced it, which is what all people do when they choose their own way. When they say, I'm going to decide for myself what is right. I'm going to decide if my own urges conflict with what God says, then I'm going to say what my urges are. They're the right ones. What God says must be wrong. It's outdated. That's fuddy-duddy stuff. It's the same thing C.S. Lewis said of the fragrance of a flower revolting against the very flower that produced it. It's us who, who are borrowing breath from our Creator, revolting against the very one who made us. And Paul says we have a message that can overcome that, that can heal that tendency, that can heal the world. 
Wouldn't it be amazing for people who grew up in families that were just not what they wished they would be? To say you could be part as you embrace this message of a family called the church. Where what is common about everybody in it is not their bloodline. And not the length of their nose or their receding hairline. But what is common about everybody in it is that they're level. And they've all been acted upon by Jesus Christ. And they're here not because they're wise and not because they have executive styled hair. And not because they're extremely athletic and they did well on the SAT. They're here because they're all equally in trouble and they're all people who cannot live except for a daily requirement of mercy from God who will not treat them as their sins deserve. Oh, to be accepted by God like that, hopefully you know this, and then to be able to share that acceptance with other people, to know that God is glad that you are and that you're His, and to spread that gladness with other people to say, we're glad you're here. We're glad you're part of us. You can be part of God's family. And it don't cost nothing to you. See, the apostle wants this message spread because he knows that it will be good news. If it is honored among people, it will not be like the establishment of Sharia law where if you are an adulteress, you'll be hanged or stoned. Or if you're a thief, you'll have your hand chopped off. It's where this benevolent kingdom gets set up in communities and in families and in hearts. And you know that if you're an adulteress, you can own it and God will clean you. And if you've cheated on your taxes, God will forgive you. And if you've lied, and if you've turned your back to the poor, and you've been stingy with your money, and you've loved your work more than your kids, God will forgive you. And he'll accept you. And he'll let you say, he'll let you know that you have eternal life. He wants a message like that spread. He tells these Thessalonians early on, he knows God loves them because when they heard this message, they turned from living idols to worship the true God. He said, no longer. See, this is what happens. When this message comes to people and it's impacted by prayer, It's soaked and wrapped in prayer. What happens is some people will receive it and they'll stop giving their hearts to things. Stop giving their hearts fully to things that will die when they do. They'll be giving their hearts not anymore to idols that they can carry around and control, but they themselves will be carried along by this God that they worship. One author has said, if you can carry it, it ain't a God. It's a God if it can carry you. And see, the apostle wants this message spread because he knows that in this world, you are destined for trouble. A family in our congregation this week, all kinds of trouble. One just told me in the meet and greet time is, he got in a car wreck and then his house got hit by lightning. And you're just like, is this a, is this a weird Tom Hanks comedy from the 80s? The money pit? What's going on? Hard things happen. Bad things happen. Troublesome things happen. 
And the apostle wants you to have a fortification, a God that can carry you through it. That's why he wants this message to spread and be honored. A God who won't leave you and whose affection for you won't run out. But he knows that for this message to spread, it won't just be his ingenuity. He asks that it be wrapped in prayer. This book, almost all of the apostle's life is wrapped in prayer. As I mentioned before, he says at the beginning, I thank God for all of you because of your growing love. And then he's saying here, I want you to pray for us. Jim Gaffigan also has a bit about bacon. Do you know bacon? You like bacon? Our kids love bacon. He says this about bacon. Do you want to know how good bacon is? It's so good that foods that nobody likes or has heard of, they wrap it in bacon and then suddenly you'll eat it. No one would even know what a water chestnut was if you didn't wrap it in bacon. Dear Bacon, he says, thank you. Signed, Water Chestnut the Third. He says, and bacon bits are like the magic fairy dust of food. If you come up against a baked potato, nobody wants to eat a baked potato by itself, but bada boom, bada bing, bacon. You pour bacon on there and suddenly you've got yourself a delightful treat. And of course, Ron Swanson once said about shrimp, shrimp wrapped in bacon. He said, that's my third favorite food wrapped in my first favorite food. And I think that's what the Apostle Paul would envision prayer being like bacon. Follow the analogy. Hang, hang, hang. See, bacon wrapped on anything makes it better, makes intolerable things tolerable. And for the apostle, prayer is his breath. It's the bacon of his life that you wrap around all the most thorny situations, the most seemingly impossible situations. You wrap it around there, and then suddenly these things become tolerable. Tolerable. The power unleashed by prayer saturates the life, the message, the movement of it. He wants a life that's well wrapped with prayer so that you can find this message of the Lord moving through lives. You know, the apostle would probably agree with this, that the, what Louis Palau once said, the church is like manure. Oh, that's really sweet. The church is like manure. If you leave it stacked up together, it just stinks up the place. But if you spread it out around the world, it fertilizes It causes growth. It causes flourishing in every place. And that's what's meant to happen. The apostle knows that. That's why he's saying, pray that this message would move. Pray that this message would move through your partnerships. And as we hear it in our lives today, we have partners in Boston and in Central Asia and India and South America. We have partnerships in Africa. We have people who are laboring For the spread of the message of the Lord and every single one of you also is somebody who is in a network who has something valuable to share with people around you. What if you daily, in answer to the question, how do I pray? What do I pray? You ever wondered that? I mean, some of you, when you prayed, I mean, just be honest, it's it's awful, isn't it? Sometimes when you're praying, you think, I should like this. This should be a holy 
experientially refreshing thing, but it's just kind of boring. You pray, you, you just kind of pray out your family patriotism. Bless my son and bless my daughters and bless my aunt and bless my grandma. And, and you just put yourself to sleep and you're thinking God might have fallen asleep on you too. But if you start to pray for a movement of God's message in your life and in the lives of others, the stuff you pray starts to be the stuff you live. The stuff you start looking for. What if you pray that your marriage would have the message of the Lord ringing out from it? Like the Thessalonians were earlier commended for. That you weren't merely thinking about what you were getting out of it, but you were thinking, how is my marriage depicting the reconciling mercies of God to other people, to the world? How is our promise showing something about the reliability of God's tenacious promise toward us? To the watching world. When you're at work and you're tempted to be gossiping about the, the awful policies that your company's just enacted or your stupidity of your boss who's such a twit. And you think, well, how is the message of the Lord springing out from me? Pray that the message of the Lord would run out of your life. When you're struggling, when you're suffering, just like Jesus who persevered, Praying that this message would come off your life even as you hurt. Even as you're despondent. You pray that the message would move. And you've also got to pray that the message will move you. The apostle, I mean, the apostle, yeah, same difference, Tim Keller, said, <laughs> I met the Pope. Keller was asked recently some some very practical ways to help lay people in the church to evangelize their friends. And he says, here's some things you could do. So if you like practical things, here's some. He said, if you really want to be, if he said just 20% of the people in your church would start doing this, you'd see conversions, you'd see your church growing all the time. First of all, around your network of friends, like when this message that we're praying that will go viral, we're hoping it'll get into our lives and just let people around you know that you go to church. Don't, you don't have to broadcast it arrogantly. You just let it be said in passing. Let the people around you know that you are someone who participates in a church. Can you do that? That's not that hard. And then he says, you know what you might do as well? Listen to your friends. Like listen to their problems. Like really listen to them. Be affected by them. Let the expense of it hit you. And share how your acknowledgement and acquaintanceship with Jesus has helped you in some kind of problem. When you're talking to your girlfriend about what a selfish beast your husband is, a husband that God himself is probably about to kill because he's so ridiculously self-absorbed. And you're talking about your anger and how many ways you fantasize about injuring him. And they're talking about that and you say, but you know how Jesus has helped me to respect him even though I'm pretty sure he doesn't deserve any respect. I'm not even sure he's an actual man. But you... Talk about how Jesus has helped you to respect your husband. Or how your life wrapped in prayer has helped you to appreciate your work in a different kind of way. It's been like bacon juice that's seeped into it and it's changed 
All the way you do your daily work because you know you're doing it for the Lord. Nothing is menial and nothing is meaningless. Because your life has purpose now. You're, you're living for an audience of one. Talk about that you're, let people know you're a Christian. Let them know that you go to church. Let them know how the Lord has helped you. Those are some basic, simple things. But then the interviewer said, well, but how do you get over some of the barriers for revealing these things to evangelizing your friends? And he said, well, one thing, you've got to have confidence in this message. And probably the only way you're going to have confidence for this message is if you have a deep personal acquaintanceship with its power. See, that's what happens every single time that you tell somebody about a new app that they've got to have or about this new physician that you've got, they've got to see if they're having some kind of physical malady or this therapist that you went to or this amazing car that you've got or this carpenter who does such good work. You've been impressed. You've come into contact with the power of it and you want to share it. You command what you cherish, says John Piper. And he says, you've got to ask God, or I'm saying this, You've got to ask God, if you want the message to spread through your life, you've got to ask God to move you with it. You've got to ask God, let me be moved by the fact that Jesus loves me. Let my heart be directed into God's accepting, embracing, never tiring love. And see, you can tell that he's starting to move you if you find yourself getting released from some of these tendencies. He says the Lord's faithful. He'll strengthen and protect you from the evil one. You know, if you find yourself if you find yourself blaming people a lot, you you can be sure you're being acted on by the devil, not by the Lord. You're not being moved by the Lord. This week an article in the Onion I, I'm sure most of you read the Onion. It's satirical, it's funny, and it's often profane. Now, but this is what the article said. According to a study, this is a satirical, fictional article. Do you understand this? Okay. According to a study published Wednesday in the New England Journal of Medicine, blame has now surpassed instinctive responses such as blinking and flinching as the fastest human reflex. Our research shows that assigning fault to another person for a negative or unintended outcome is now the human body's quickest involuntary action, said lead author Dr. John Witsack, adding that changes to the brain's neural pathways over time have allowed for a nearly instantaneous transition between perceiving a problem and condemning someone else for causing it. The quickest human reaction now, faster than blinking, is blaming. And if you want to be moved by the Lord, you find yourself somebody who all of a sudden stops saying how your spouse is ruining your life or how your job or your lack of money or your upbringing or the way your kids are. You take responsibility for things. You own up to the fact that you're someone who needs mercy because you believe that God's someone who gives it and then you know you're being moved. You find that you're being moved when, you, when you're not so overcome by the fear of missing out. Which you've heard me talk about before. You can be sure that the devil's acting on you when you blame. That's what our first parents did after he, he led them into sin. This dang woman you gave me. She, and then the woman, this dang snake. 
Well, the fear of missing out is the same thing. When you spend your life meditating on the lives of others in a voyeuristic way, sort of watching their carefully curated life of incessant autobiography, where for some peculiar reason or another they take pictures of all the meals that they eat. Why do people take pictures of the meals that they eat? Please stop doing that. But you look at these meals and you think, look how crummy your life is. And here you are sitting on this terrible couch when other people have such modern furniture. Your clothes are so plain and they're so unhip and your glasses are not pointy. And you start to think as Satan whispers in your ear like he did to our first parents, God's holding out on you. Did God really say, God doesn't know what's best for me. God is jipping me somehow. God is not giving me what I need. And you ca- this causes this festering self-absorption, this, this, this cancerous comparison of yourself with other people. And you start to live as if your life is a single elimination tournament, says one New York Times author. But it's not. You're not in competition with everybody else. But so long as you think you are, you'll always be losing or else thinking you're better than other people. But when the Lord starts acting on you and you say, will you move me with this message? You all of a sudden start saying, I don't know if I need to, I don't know if I, if I can't be happy for other people's lives, maybe I just won't analyze their lives. And, and I know for certain that the life I have is the life that the Lord has assigned me. And so I'm going to cultivate contentment and not this, this cancerous constant comparison with others. I'm not going to compare the highlight reels of other lives with the behind-the-scenes stuff of my own, says another author. And you also find yourself able to persevere. If God starts to move you, you'll, you'll be able to persevere. People who are acted on by Satan, they find their faith waning. They give up. They give up their commitments. They give up their, their allegiance to Jesus. You've heard the story about the little boy whose parents divorced, and he said to them, Dad, why did you have to quit in the middle? You can be sure that you're being moved into Christ's perseverance. You're being moved by this message of the Lord when you have tenacious commitments. When you have this this unflagging desire to keep coming back even when you've fallen away to the Lord because you know He will receive you. If this message is ever going to move others, it's got to be moving you and praying that it would happen is a huge way that it's a it's a wrapping of bacon around your life so that you can be moved a good friend of mine recently had a big part of his life fall out from under him and i was writing him back because he had handled it with much grace and aplomb and i know how much he was hurting, and I said to him, I'm so sorry that it's panned out this way, that it's all gone down this way. And he said this to me, and if he had been 